Section 5 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1. The Age of Discovery by E. J. Payne. Part 3. The establishment of Islam gave a new and powerful stimulus to all Arabian enterprise. By the end of the 15th century, there existed from the Red Sea to Japan a valuable and well-organized commerce, mainly in the hands of Arabian or other Muslim seamen and merchants. For the effect of the propagation of Islam had been to bring to the field of Asiatic trade a crowd of adventurers of many nations, many of whom were Turks of Anatolia or Europe. Others were Greeks, Albanians, Circassians, and other Levantines of European descent, who had abandoned the Christian faith for gain, and had brought to the Muslim sailors and merchants of the Eastern Ocean the knowledge and experience of the Mediterranean peoples. These were generally known in India and the Far East as Rums, Arabic Rumi, a Greek, and Muslim opponents found in the East by the Portuguese thus included not only true Arabs, whether of Arabia, Africa, or India, generally known as Moors, but large numbers of Turks and Rums, whose European experience and connection greatly aided the Moors in their resistance to the European maritime invasion. The course of trade in these seas was not exclusively from west to east and back again. From very early times, a maritime commerce had been carried on in the reverse direction, and the meeting place of the two trades was the port of Calicut. Hither came, once a year, for only during the summer were the Chinese seas navigable for Chinese vessels, a large trading fleet from the ports of China. The huge Chinese junks, with their fixed sails of matted reeds, never lowered, even in harbor, and mainly propelled by oars of immense length, and having on board gardens of growing vegetables and large chambers for the ship's officers and their families, so that each was, as it were, a floating town, were objects of curious interest to the Arabian sailors. The largest were reputed to carry a thousand persons, and each was attended by three smaller craft for the purpose of loading and unloading. It was natural for the Arabs, who had already secured a part of the Indian coasting trade, to push their way towards the Far East, and to claim a share in the trade of China and the Spice Islands. They found a convenient station in the port of Malacca, which, in their hands, quickly became the second great emporium of the eastern trade. Nor did they rest here. Making their way to the ports of China itself, they were amicably received and allowed to form settlements of their own. Many such settlements, each having its resident magistrate and sheikh-ul-Islam, existed hard by the chief Chinese ports, and others were scattered through the eastern archipelago. Malacca became the western outpost of the far eastern trade thus developed. Hither were brought the cloves of the Moluccas, the mace and nutmeg of Banda, the sandalwood of Timur, the camphire of Borneo, and many other spices, drugs, dyes, and perfumes from Java, Siam, China, and the Philippine Islands, all of which could be purchased here more cheaply 
of the resident Arab merchants than of those of Calicut, who obtained them in the ancient course of trade from the Chinese fleet. Hence, the sailors of Africa and Arabia, at the arrival of the Portuguese, already resorted directly to Malacca for the produce of the Far East, and Calicut became chiefly a market for the cinnamon of Ceylon, and the ginger, pepper, and miscellaneous commodities of Malabar itself. The ports of Arabia and the Arab settlements in eastern Africa were the inlets through which the produce of India and the Far East were finally dispersed, and large quantities found their way through Suez, Jeddah, Mascat, and Hormuz to the markets of Europe. It thus appears that the area of the eastern trade naturally fell into two divisions, the mouth of the Persian Gulf making the partition. Eastward of this lay the area of export, westward the area of import. Hence the fact that the Portuguese, having rounded southern Africa, made straight for Calicut, the outpost of the exporting area. The ideas and expectations with which they approached this immense and unique field of enterprise were tinged with the arrogance of prolonged success. It was necessary, as a means to making themselves masters of the eastern trade, before all else, not only to prove themselves masters of the Asiatic seas, but to be able to defy resistance on land, and to hold, by military force, whatever positions it might be desirable to occupy. For these purposes, such demonstrations of force as had availed them on the African coast were insufficient. Society in the East rested everywhere on a military basis. The native Asiatic princes universally possessed numerous and not ill-equipped armies, though ill-supplied, or not at all, with firearms. By sea, the Arabs and Rooms were more formidable. Wherever maritime trade exists, it must defend itself against pirates, and piracy was rife on all the Indian and Chinese shores. Hence, the larger vessels, both on the Malabar coast and on that of China, were usually manned with fighting men, and those of the Arabs and Rooms occasionally carried large guns. The Oriental fleets, if assembled in one place, would have immensely outnumbered the ships capable of being sent against them by Portugal. But in regard to construction, equipment, and the art of navigation, the Portuguese had greatly the advantage. Even the Arabs knew nothing of the art of using a vessel mainly as a military machine, much less of maneuvering and combined action for attack, defense, pursuit, and cooperation with troops on land. Eastern vessels, indeed, were scarcely capable of being so employed. The hardwoods used in constructing them forbade the use of iron nails, and their heavy planks were rudely made fast with coconut cordage and wooden pins. Steering gear and ground tackle were of a rudimentary sort. Even a moderate gale rendered the ship scarcely manageable, and the guns were useless except at close quarters. The Portuguese, who inherited the naval experience of two thousand years, had become, through their African voyages, the best seamen in Europe, possessed ships of the newest type, and attacked the Arabian vessels with the confidence begotten of their maritime successes against the Barbary Moors. The treachery experienced by da Gama from the Zamorin of Calicut made it still more necessary for the Portuguese to be strong enough to punish, 
as well as to invade the enemy. And when Pedro Álvares Cabral sailed in 1500 in command of the second expedition to India, his vessels were formidably armed with artillery. By way of demonstrating his strength, Cabral, shortly after his arrival, captured a large Moorish vessel as it passed the roadstead and presented her to the Zamorin. Suspecting the Moors of obstructing him in procuring lading for his fleet, he attacked and captured a Moorish vessel in the roadstead itself. In reprisal, the Moors on shore destroyed the Portuguese factory and massacred its inhabitants. Cabral seized and destroyed ten large Moorish ships and bombarded the town. He then sailed for Cochin, burning two more ships of Calicut on the way. Cochin, the seat of a Raja hostile to the Zamorin, was also a port frequented by the Moors, and a few of them resided there permanently. Cabral was amicably received, completing his lading, and promised the Raja to add Calicut to his dominions, his designing this being to gain the Raja's assistance in conquering Calicut for the Portuguese. Being now ready to return, Cabral declined invitations from the Rajas of Cananor and Killen, and sailed for Europe. Having encountered a storm, he put into Cananor, where the Raja promised free trade to the Portuguese, and sent on board an envoy with presents for the Portuguese king. Before his return, João de Nueva had sailed from Lisbon for India with four ships and four hundred men. In view of the hostile attitude of the Zamorin, de Nueva made for Cananor, where he learned that the Indian king was ready to attack him with forty ships. Leaving his factors at Cananor, de Nueva sailed at once to attack the enemy in their own waters and inflicted on them a signal defeat. Successful though the Portuguese had been, the tidings of this continued hostility on the part of the Raja who dominated the principal emporium of India gave rise at home to grave misgivings. Some counseled the abandonment of an enterprise to which the strength of a small European power seemed unequal. Even if the resistance of Calicut were broken, what would be the situation when Turkey and Egypt should combine with the Arabs to drive Portugal from the precarious lodgment she had acquired? And if the mere threshold of the East had proved so hard to win, how much harder would it be to strike into the heart of the field and attack the Muslim in the strong positions of the Far East, with the countless millions of China at their back? Against such arguments, the honor of a Christian nation, the lust of territorial aggrandizement, and above all the greed of gold, prevailed in the end. Twenty ships were dispatched, in three squadrons, under the general command of the first adventurer, Vasco da Gama, and other commanders followed in rapid succession. The original plan of campaign was still adhered to. Whatever the cost, the Moors must be dislodged from Calicut, the resistance of the native king broken, and the control of the trade transferred to the Portuguese, whose king the Zamorin must acknowledge as his sovereign. Beaten at every point in fair fight, the Zamorin maintained his ground by fraud and treachery. The stream of wealth still poured into Portugal through Cochin and Cananor, immensely augmented by the spoils of captured Moorish vessels, but the Zamorin still held his ground. In an interval during which the Portuguese forces were weakened by the withdrawal of returning ships, 
he attacked and destroyed Cochin. The Portuguese, having retaken it, restored its prince and built a strong fort for themselves. The infuriated Raja, having roused such of his neighbors as were amenable to his appeal, seized a similar opportunity and assailed Cochin with fifty thousand men. In a campaign of five months, he was defeated and slain by the Portuguese under Duarte Pacheco, who earned the title of the Portuguese Achilles. But his successor maintained the same attitude, and dispatched an embassy to the Sultan of Egypt, asking for aid in resisting the invaders. The Sultan sent words to the Pope, threatening to destroy the holy places at Jerusalem if the Portuguese persisted in their invasion of India. The only effect of this empty menace was to stimulate the Portuguese king to renewed efforts on a larger scale. The crisis of the struggle was approaching, and in view of this a more comprehensive scheme was adopted. Abandoning the attempt to reduce the obstinate resistance of a single prince, it was determined to attack the Muslim maritime system in all its parts, and to establish a new emporium on the Malabar coast as the commercial and naval center of the new Portuguese Eastern Empire. Already the Moorish traders in search of the produce of the Far East had begun to avoid the Malabar coast, and to make their way from the Arabian and African ports by a new route to Malacca. It was resolved to seize this key of the Far East without delay, and to gain possession of the Moorish settlements on the African coast and the Arabian ports of Hormus and Aden. By exacting heavy duties at these places, the whole trade would gradually be diverted, and the Portuguese would ultimately control the Red Sea itself. The chief African settlements were seized with little difficulty by Francisco de Almeida, and the rest of the program was successfully carried out by Afonso de Albuquerque, between 1509 and 1515. The excellent natural harbor of Goa had already been chosen as the new seat of the Portuguese dominions. The town, built by the Muslim fifty years previously, had lately fallen, together with the adjacent country, under the sway of the powerful Adil Khan, and it was well known that here the Muslim enemy intended to concentrate their forces with the view of driving the Portuguese from the Indian seas. A Muslim pirate, who foresaw the issue of the contest, allied himself with the Portuguese, on the terms that he should be appointed Guazil, or Port Admiral, of Goa, and farmer of the large demean lands which the conquest would annex to the Portuguese crown. And, on March the 4th, 1510, Albuquerque entered Goa, and received the keys of the fortress. The dispossessed Hindu inhabitants welcomed the Portuguese as deliverers, and although Adil Khan forced his way again into the town, compelling the Portuguese to evacuate, it was recaptured by Albuquerque on November 25th and strongly fortified. Many Portuguese received grants of land and married native women. The confiscated estates of the Moorish mosques and Hindu temples were annexed to the great church of St. Catherine. A mint was set up, the new coinage having on one side the cross of the Order of Christ, on the other Manuel's device of a sphere, lately adopted by him, to signalize the vast accession which his dominions had now received. Hindus and Moors returned to the settlement, acknowledging the Portuguese supremacy, and Goa thus became the most thriving port of the Malabar coast. Albuquerque followed up this success 
by sailing in person from Malacca, where he arrived in June 1511. A few Portuguese had already been allowed to settle there for the purpose of trade. They had been treacherously attacked by the Moors, and their property confiscated, and although a few effected their escape, several were still held prisoners. Mohammed, the Sultan of Malacca, having refused Albuquerque's demand for their liberation and the restitution of their property, Albuquerque assaulted and sacked the town, capturing hundreds of guns, erected a fortress, set up a mint, and built a church dedicated to the Virgin. The native princes of the adjoining mainland and islands hastened to offer their friendship and urged the Portuguese commander to make his footing secure. In this, he completely succeeded, for, although repeated attempts were made to dislodge the Portuguese, the settlement was successfully defended, and became, as was foreseen, a base from which all the Muslim settlements in the Far East were gradually reduced to subjection. The news of the capture of Malacca was in due time communicated to the court of Rome. A public thanksgiving was appointed, marked by processions in which the Pope figured in person. Later came an embassy from Portugal, headed by Tristão da Cunha, under whom Albuquerque had seen his first service in the East. The presence of gold, jewels, and oriental embroidery, an earnest of the future wealth to be drawn by the Holy See from the East, were borne in triumphal procession. They were followed by richly caparisoned Persian horses, leopards, a panther, and a gigantic elephant, which knelt thrice before the Holy Father and in reply to an address, Leo X delivered a Latin oration, in which he praised the maintenance of peace by the Christian powers, and spoke hopefully of the union of their forces against the Muslim. Meanwhile, Albuquerque, having almost swept the Turkish and Arab ships from the Indian Sea, was preparing to carry the war into their own waters. Early in 1513, he sailed from Goa with twenty vessels, and after an unsuccessful attack on Aden, entered the Red Sea. His successes had filled his mind with the wildest expectations. By an alliance with the Christian sovereign of Abyssinia, he dreamed of establishing himself on the Upper Nile, cutting a canal through the mountains separating it from the Red Sea, diverting the river, and thus turning into a desert the most flourishing of the Muslim countries. Another project was to land a force in the harbor of Yembo, plunder the temple of Medina, and carry away Mohammed's coffin, to be held until the holy places of Jerusalem should be surrendered in exchange for it. A fiery cross, seen over the African coast as he waited for a wind, was hailed as an omen of success. But prudence and the affairs of Goa suggested his return, and after a very limited reconnaissance of the Red Sea coasts, he returned to India. The voyage confirmed his belief in the capture and fortification of Aden as the necessary means of effecting a junction with Abyssinia at the port of Massoa. This once accomplished, Suez, Jiddah, and Mecca itself would be practically at the invader's mercy. At another important point, Albuquerque strengthened the Portuguese position. Before succeeding to the chief command, he had set up a small Portuguese factory at the ancient port of Hormuz, near the entrance of the Persian Gulf. From this, the Portuguese had advanced to obtaining control of the customs payable on Persian exports to India. 
Albuquerque now obtained the surrender of the fort of Hermus, with the command of the entire import trade from India to Persia, as well as through Mesopotamia to Aleppo and Beirut on the Mediterranean. At the time of his death, he was preparing an expedition for the conquest of Aden, the only thing which seemed still undone, in order to give Portugal complete control of the eastern seas, being, in his own words, the closing of the gates of the straits. He died at Goa, habited as a commendador of the Order of Santiago. By his will, he desired that his bones should be carried to Portugal. This was strenuously opposed by the settlers of Goa, who believed their city to be only safe so long as the bones of the great commander remained among them. Nor was it until fifty years later, when the Portuguese dominion seemed absolutely safe from attack, that they were, at length, removed to Lisbon. During these fifty years, the main features of his scheme had been carried out. Unmolested access to all the trading stations in the Far East was obtained, and of many, the Portuguese were in uncontrolled possession. In other places, they shared the trade with those whom they had hoped to expel. Albuquerque's scheme for seizing and holding the Red Sea was abandoned, and the culmination of the Portuguese successes in the East was followed by the rapid decline of their power. We must now recur to the situation of other European powers at the time of Dom Manuel's succession to the throne in 1495. Not merely were the Spaniards by this time actively preparing for the exploration and effective occupation of their newly acquired transatlantic islands, but Englishmen, who had so long been prosecuting westward discovery, and whose king, Henry VII, had barely missed the prize which had fallen to the lot of Spain, now bestirred themselves once more. Bristol was at this time one of the most considerable ports in Europe. Its merchants and seamen vied with those of Genoa and Venice, and skilled navigators from those great ports here found ready employment. Doubtless in 1495 or earlier, the news of Colombo's success in a quest which Bristol men had long made an interest of their own roused its merchants' activity, and John Cabot, a citizen of Venice, though of Genoese extraction, became the chosen instrument of their designs. Cabot's three sons, Louis, Sebastian, and Sanctus, had apparently all been educated to his own calling, and on March the 5th, 1496, Henry the Seventh granted a petition, preferred by the father and sons, praying the sanction of the crown to a voyage contemplated by them in search of unknown countries, understood or believed to exist beyond the ocean in northern latitudes. Having regard to the large commerce carried on between Bristol and Iceland, and to the continuity of Icelandic tradition embodied in the sagas, we entertain no doubt that the intention was to seek the new land, new isle, or Vineland of the Northmen. And this conclusion is borne out by the course actually taken when the voyage was begun. Pursuant to this petition, still preserved in the public record office, the privy seal was, on the same day, affixed to the first charter authorizing its holders to hoist the English flag on shores hitherto unknown to Christian people, and to acquire the sovereignty of them for the English crown. This charter, and the voyage made pursuant to it, were put forward in a later generation, and are still sometimes regarded as the root of England's title to her American possessions, 
and the date of the letters patent, March the 5th, 1496, has not ineptly been styled the birthday of the British Empire. It is stipulated that the grantees, who are authorized to enter the northern, western, and eastern seas, but not the southern, shall, after each voyage, return to the port of Bristol, that they shall then and there pay to the crown, in money or merchandise, one-fifth of their net profits, that they shall be allowed to import their goods free of customs, and that no English subject shall frequent the continents, islands, villages, towns, castles, and places generally frequented by them without their license. While the Cabot Grant disregards the Pope's supposed partition of the globe between Portugal and Spain, it forbids, by implication, any intrusion into those southern seas in which each of these powers had already acquired territory by actual occupation. Columbus' discoveries were, as yet, limited to the chain of islands separating the Caribbean Sea from the Atlantic. The Portuguese had not, as yet, set foot on American soil. The voyage of Cabot, which had no practical results, and was soon well-nigh forgotten, will be briefly noticed in our next chapter. Englishmen, eminently practical, saw in the intelligence brought back by him no promise of a profitable commerce, or indeed of commerce at all, nor did English colonial ideas take a definite shape until nearly a century later. Meanwhile, the Spanish monarchs, anxious to ascertain the extent of their transoceanic possessions, and to secure them from intrusion, licensed Vicente Yanez Pinzon, who had commanded a vessel under Colombo in his first voyage, to prosecute the discovery of the supposed coast of eastern Asia. Pinzon was directed to avoid interference with the private rights acquired by Colombo, and to visit only the coast to southward of the Orinoco, the limit of Colombo's explorations. Starting from the Cape Verde Islands on November 14, 1499, and having on board Américo Vespucci, through whose narrative the voyage became well known, though the name of the captain who conducted it was suppressed, Pinzon stood to the southwest and struck the coast of Brazil near Cape St. Augustine in the state of Pernambuco. Sailing northward along the coast, he rounded Cape San Roque, the northwestern promontory of South America coasted along the northeastern shore of Brazil and the coasts of Guiana and Venezuela, passing the mouth of the Amazon River, the rivers of Guiana and the Orinoco, and reached the Gulf of Peria, whence he made his way back to Europe, bringing with him thirty Indian captives and a quantity of strange vegetable products, including various dyewoods, whence the coast ultimately obtained its permanent name of Brazil. When these new discoveries were laid down on the chart, it became manifest that a considerable part of them were to the east of the 370 leagues line, agreed on in 1494 as the boundary between the Spanish and Portuguese areas of enterprise. And by a singular accident, these very coasts were reached in the last year of the 15th century by Pedro Alvarez Cabral, the commander of the second Portuguese expedition to India and the Far East. Like da Gama himself, Cabral proposed to cross from the Cape Verde Islands to the Cape of Good Hope, athwart the open sea, making, for the reason already given in our description of da Gama's voyage, an immense circuit to the westward. In so doing, he lost sight, as might be anticipated, of one of his ships. While seeking her, 
he lost his course, and unexpectedly descried land. It was the Brazilian coast, the mountain range called Pascual, in the state of Bahia, to the south of the spot where Pinzon had landed three months previously. Having discovered a safe harbor, named by him Porto Seguro, Cabral proceeded on his voyage to the Cape and India. Thus was America discovered for the second time, and independently of the enterprise of Colombo. The discovery was rapidly followed up. In May 1501, Manuel dispatched three vessels commissioned to explore from Porto Seguro southwards, as far as the coast within the Portuguese line might extend. They returned in September 1502, having discovered it as far south as 32 degrees of south latitude. Adding this coast to what had already been discovered by Colombo and others in the Caribbean Sea, it will be seen that at the time of Colombo's death in 1506, and in the course of fourteen years from his first voyage, about seven thousand miles of the Atlantic coast of America had been revealed. As a mere matter of measurement, this fell short of the length of coastline which Portuguese enterprise had added to, or rather had accurately traced on, the map of Africa since the year 1426. But its geographical importance and general significance were far greater, for it became more and more doubtful whether this immense coast could possibly be the eastern shore of Asia. Colombo himself, in writing of the lands reached by him, occasionally referred to them as constituting another world, Orbis, or a new world. The former expression had been commonly employed in late Roman times to denote regions separated or apparently separated by the ocean from the continent of Europe, such as the British islands were, and the Scandinavian peninsula was supposed to be. The latter expression came into general use. It was employed by Vespucci in the narrative of his voyages, which has circulated in manuscript with a view to his own promotion in the maritime profession, a narrative which fell into the hands of an obscure printer, one Waldsmüller of Saint-Dien-Lorraine, and was embodied in a brief outline of geography compiled by him and printed in 1507. Half in jest, half seriously, Waldsmüller proposed to denominate the new world from the seamen whom he supposed to be its discoverer, and gave it the name America. By similar steps proceeded the final stage of the great discovery, in which the new world was revealed in something nearly approximating to its real extent, and its discontinuity with Asia proved everywhere except in the northernmost parts of the Pacific. From the Caribbean Sea, Spanish explorers advanced northwards to the Gulf of Mexico, circumnavigated Cuba, reached the peninsula of Florida and the mouth of the Mississippi, proved the continuity of these northern shores with the America of the South, and show them to be probably continuous with the new land of the Northmen, which had been revisited by Cabot, and subsequently by the Portuguese navigator Corte Real. This probability was strengthened by the voyage of the Florentine seaman Giovanni da Verrazzano, commissioned for the purpose by Francis I of France in 1524, in circumstances to be mentioned presently. Before this, not only had the Pacific been reached by crossing the continent in more than one place, but Magalhães had discovered and passed the strait which bears his name. Juan Díaz de Solis, in 1515, reached the Plate River, where he and several companions were killed in a kidnapping raid on the natives. Probably, 
he supposed himself to have reached the southern extremity of the continent. Shortly afterwards, the estuary was examined by a more famous captain, who ascertained its real geographical character. Fernão de Magalhães, a skilful Portuguese seaman, who had long been employed in the Portuguese trade to the Far East, having been refused an increase of pay to which he considered himself fairly entitled, quitted the service of Manuel, and sought to revenge himself by persuading Charles V that the Spice Islands were within the hemisphere assigned to Spain by the Treaty of 1494. He undertook to demonstrate this and to conduct Spanish vessels thither by a route round the southern Cape of America, and on September 20th, 1519, he sailed from San Lucar for this purpose. The enormous estuary of the Plate River had to be completely explored, in order to ascertain that it was not, in fact, the passage of which he was in search, and more than a year elapsed before this intrepid navigator found himself past the fiftieth parallel of latitude, painfully coasting the barren and apparently interminable coast of Patagonia. Nearly two months elapsed before he reached the strait which bears his name. On November 27, 1520, having occupied twenty days in threading the strait, he reached the Pacific, and fourteen months afterwards he was slowly nearing the Ladrones, after accomplishing the greatest feat of continuous seamanship the world has ever known. Magalhães was fated not to complete his task. He fell by the spear of a native at Zebu, one of the Philippine Islands, on April 27, 1521, and his vessel, the Victoria, was brought home on September the 8th, 1522, after making the first circumnavigation of the globe in a voyage which occupied three years less fourteen days. The feat which Colombo proposed to accomplish, a voyage to the far east by a westward passage across the Atlantic, was at length achieved thirty years after its projector made the first attempt to perform it, and twenty-four after he stumbled unexpectedly on the vast continent which barred the way. End of section 5